And hello from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. My name is Kevin Richard. Clark Corbin is on vacation this week, but don't worry, you're not just going to have to listen to me this whole time. Seth O'Gilvie from Idaho Public Television is going to join me here in a couple of minutes. We're going to have a conversation about the state of the 2018 Idaho elections, at least so far, and we'll talk about how education issues may play into those races. But first, a couple of headlines from this week. Thursday was payday for the K-12 system as the state lottery distributed its dividends from 2016-2017 lottery ticket sales. The bottom line for public schools, $30.3 million in dividends, and that's money that will go into building projects around the state. To put that number into perspective, the Idaho legislature approved nearly $1.7 billion in public school spending this year, and that's money that comes from sales taxes and income taxes. So the lottery still represents just a sliver of state support for public schools. $30.3 million is a slight decrease in lottery payments from last year, which was a record year for lottery ticket sales. In Bonneville County, the College of Eastern Idaho took two steps closer to becoming reality this week. On Wednesday, the State Board of Education approved an associate degree program at the new community college and also put into place five trustees who will govern the community college at least until the end of 2018. You'll recall back in May, voters in Bonneville County approved the creation of the College of Eastern Idaho, which will become Idaho's fourth community college. And add Preston to the list of school districts around the state that will delay the start of the school year because of the August 21st solar eclipse. School will start in Preston on Tuesday, August 22nd. We know of several other districts around the state that are doing similar things because of the eclipse and because of the influx of tourists that are expected to view the eclipse as it passes over Idaho. We also want to look at the eclipse from an educational standpoint and look for stories about how the eclipse is being used as a teaching tool and a learning opportunity around the state. And we welcome your suggestions. If you have any tips, please send them to news at idahoednews.org. Again, news at idahoednews.org. Earlier this week, I had the chance to sit down and talk to one of my favorite folks in the Idaho news media, Seth O'Gilvie from Idaho Public Television. Yes, we renewed our ongoing Idaho political podcast war, but we also talked about the 2018 elections, education issues, and Seth talked about whether Idaho has a unicorn candidate in its midst. Give it a listen. Joining us this week on the podcast is Seth O'Gelvie from Idaho Reports and Idaho Public Television and the Point of Personal Privilege podcast. Uh, a little truce in the podcast war, but uh, thank you for joining me. A truth. Uh, I, I think the, uh, some more shots were fired last week at the end of your podcast. I, I heard that I'm challenged to go over an hour on this podcast. I know you guys normally keep it about a half an hour, about half the time is our podcast. But I'd also like to point out that you have about half the amount of people listening. Shots fired! Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I, on that note, I mean, it's great to have you here, I, I guess. Um, I did want to get caught up on on politics. I mean, we're, we're both soccer fans in our non-political, non-journalist time. Oh, there's nothing non-political about soccer. Oh, absolutely not. But uh, we are in kind of, to torture the metaphor, we're in kind of the transfer season in Idaho political uh, the political timetable. We've had uh, Russ Fulcher move transfer from the governor's race to the first congressional race. We may or may not see 
more candidates in that congressional race. My guess is we'll see more. Uh, I, I would be incredibly surprised if we didn't see at least one more. Yeah, I, I would, would definitely expect more candidates, and really probably the more candidates you get, maybe more people look at the race as winnable because it becomes such a fractured field. We've got this, you know, we've got what probably is the race for governor, you would think, unless something changes. The superintendent's race is sort of in flux. We may see more challengers to, to Sherry Ibarra. We have your, your typically crowded race for lieutenant governor. Uh, as you've watched it, what's been sort of your takeaway so far about the shuffle and, and the field as it's emerging? I mean, what, what jumps out at you? And... I, I love your uh, metaphor of the transfer windows, but I was almost thinking about it more of the NBA draft. Where where are you getting these candidates from? Mm-hmm. Are, are you drafting at a college, which I'd say is maybe more of the uh, the state house senators and legislators at the state level? Are you drafting from high school? Are you going to the superintendents of the businessmen, the people that are not directly in state politics, or are, are you just going wild card? Are you drafting people from? Uh, Let's say the European League, mm-hmm. which I would say is maybe your businessmen, your right. folks that are like all, you know, would never be a first thought as a, a congressional candidate or a superintendent. And there's, there's certain, you know, measurables, to mm-hmm. use an, another sports term. You go to the combine, you say, oh, they've got this, this, and this. Um, we were talking about the superintendent's race earlier. There's certain things that you want in a superintendent candidate. Mm-hmm. You want them to have teaching experience. You want them to be able to control a large state budget. School administrative experiences always been looked at as something that you want in a superintendent's candidate. And I think that's definitely on the minds of voters in light of the the Tom Luna years and a lot of the backlash over Tom Luna. A lot of it really centered on the fact that he wasn't an educator, that that he had no school administrative experience. So I think that becomes, well, it's not a legal prerequisite. I think uh, it becomes a political prerequisite for a lot of voters. We want somebody who's spent some time in the classroom, who's spent some time in, in school administration. And right now we have uh, Sherry Barra, who mm-hmm. was a teacher, has worked in administration, and is working in administration at the highest level at this mm-hmm. point. Um, we have a superintendent from over Wilder. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff Dillon. Jeff Dillon, thank you. I was forgetting the name. It's, it's been a little while. I've been on vacation. Um, and that's it right now. No clear-cut candidate from the Democratic side. Mm-hmm. Um, they're probably in hardcore draft mode. I know a lot of people have talked about uh, Jeannie Ward King, mm-hmm. who fits that mode. Who would of, check off the boxes of classroom and educa- education experience and political experience. And now a JFAC member who's actually mm-hmm. worked with the education budget as well. Right. So she ticks off a lot of uh, boxes, but the little... Um, ravens that I have wandering around the state house talking to folks... They don't think that that's a highly likely candidate. They think mm-hmm. it's probably going to be someone else. So at this point, you really only have one heavy hitter in the race on both the Republican and Democratic side. And as I was telling you right before we started this podcast, I think the state of Idaho deserves a conversation in this election about education. I think we're at a turning right. point, both at the federal level and the state level. And say what you want about any of the candidates. I think it's crucial for the state of Idaho to kind of start wrapping its head around what it wants its education system to be. Well, and I think especially now, because if you think about the superintendent's race in 2018 and the term from 2019 to 2023, it's hard to wrap my brain around that we're talking about that (laughs) that many years out. But, But we are talking about a time where the superintendent, whether it is Sherry Abara re-elected or a new superintendent could have a lot more 
opportunity to chart the course for education beyond what the task force does. Because the task force, as uh, Butch Otter has said repeatedly, is a five-year plan. Well, that five-year plan is going to run its course uh, in the next couple of years, and, and then you may have the opportunity for a state superintendent to, to really uh, put his or her stamp on public education unencumbered by the, the weight and the expectations of, uh, of the task force and the task force rollout. And I've asked both the governor this and uh, Superintendent Yabara this, but we don't have a five-year plan now, mm-hmm. I, and we need one. And when you look at the funding formula coming in, when you look at um, certain moves at the federal level that could turn a lot of this money into just simple block grants, the, the guidance on what we're going to do in Idaho is going to have to come from Idaho, it looks like. Right. And that next five-year plan is almost more critical than the, the last five-year plan that we had mm-hmm. because way more decisions are going to be made. And it's going to be layered onto whatever recommendations come out of this higher education task force, which we should see some recommendations by uh, the fall. And those, my goodness, those could be some very costly recommendations. I mean, you could kind of almost feel the mood of the room change as there was more discussion at the last task force meeting about if you really want to get to the 60% goal, whenever you get to the 60% goal, because you're not going to get to it by 2020, but whenever you get to that 60% goal, to to have that many students in the higher education system pursuing degrees uh, or, or post-secondary certificates, you're going to need 40,000 more students. We're not, <laughs> you don't just put 40,000 students into the existing system without making some serious uh, changes and some serious investments. And that's going to... Uh, that's going to cloud the discussion about the race for governor. It's going to cloud the race for a state superintendent. And it trickles down to some legislative races, too, when we get to that point next year. And I think within that that vision uh, vacuum that we kind of have right now, I, I think you see a lot of interesting things happen. I've been asking a lot of candidates about these these couple of things that I think gives me an idea. Uh, first off, how are, we, how are we going to make our uh, education system in the state constitutional? Both, mm-hmm. both the governor and the Supreme Court of Idaho have both said this is not a constitutional system. So how do we get it uniform and equal, as our Constitution says? Secondly, what do we want our kids to be when they get out of school? Do we want them to be college and career ready? I don't know what that necessarily means. That could mean they're ready to be a plumber. That could mean they're ready to go to college. That could mean they have a well-rounded liberal arts education. That means they meet federal standards or some sort of common core standards that have been left out. But we really haven't had that articulated by the gubernatorial candidates and maybe not so much the superintendent recently. I don't think she's laid out her plan of this is what children should look like when they get out of K through 12 education system. And then finally, we need to figure out how we're going to get there. Right. I mean, we have we haven't even answered the basic questions outside of local control of what we want. Mm-hmm. So the next step of how we actually get there, which is the harder question to answer, is still way out there on the horizon. Right, and, and I think a lot of it is going to be affected by the work that's going on with this funding formula committee. Yeah. I, I don't think we know yet where that funding formula committee is going to come down on the issue of equality and, and the issue of equitable funding. I, I think uh, there's uh, pretty good recognition on that committee, pretty good awareness that you, you've got a system where, you know, Districts are relying more and more upon supplemental levies. Some pass them, some some don't. Uh, some don't pursue them. So we've got that. 
But what do you do about that at the state level? And what do you do about that in the funding formula to, to try to address that? Really hard to say. I mean, really complicated issues before that committee. And I think you're absolutely right. It's bureaucratic, but it, it's not it's, it's true. I mean, the, the state of Idaho, through its citizenry and its elected officials, um, have basically given control at this point of the state education system over to a, a group of people, some of which are elected, some of which aren't. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you talk about local control, this is about as far away from local control as you can get. Some of these people no one's ever voted for. Some of these people have never been in your community. And they might be the ones that are really writing the future of education here in Idaho. Yeah. And, and so, so and this is all kind of the backdrop as we start to think about these elections and think about which elections are going to have more of, a, uh, more of an impact on, on the education debate, on education policy. Yeah. We're talking a lot about the state, and we're talking a lot about what this funding formula committee is going to do, and uh, you know the debate about you know state education policy. I find myself realizing we're going to spend a lot more time thinking about federal education policy and thinking about this congressional race, this first CD race, uh, because it's an open race. We're probably going to have to cover that one a lot more closely than I've covered a congressional race in the four years that I've been uh, doing this. And that race is going to have some major implications for public education. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, you have uh, former lieutenant governor, or former governor, uh, David Leroy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let, me, let me use the proper formal things. Also attorney general, David Leroy, um, who's said that he's... Because everybody who's a former lieutenant governor is quick to say, yeah, governor, no, governor, you know. You, you get uh, a couple of responsibilities. One of them is using the term uh, governor for yourself. Um, <laughs> Freely and, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, Superfluously. <laughs> and if you ever run into a lieutenant governor, they're not going to be upset if you call him governor. They're going to like it. Just no. the pro tip. No. Um, but, yeah, so uh, David Leroy has said that he's interested in getting rid of that Federal Department of Education altogether. He's entertaining that idea. You have Russ Fulcher, who's a big fan of uh, Bessie DeVos. DeVos. I can never DeVos. Get DeVos, thank you. I was second-guess myself when I say it. And some of the... Uh, the moves towards more state control, taking a lot of the strings off that money, moving towards more of a block grant system, we've heard, something along those lines, but we're still yet to see the Im- implementations of it. And those are our two candidates right now. Mm-hmm. We, we're probably going to see someone fill a little bit more of that um, moderate l- lane in that race, I'd imagine. But you might also see some more, more conservative candidates get in there as well, who are even more uh, state control of education than the ones that are already in there. Well, yeah, and, and I think... It's really hard to handicap what that congressional race is going to look like because I agree. I, I don't think it's going to be a two-person race. I mean, you know, Luke Malik is looking at the race. Uh, he, you would think, would fit more of that moderate mold. Uh, Elaine Bagginger, who's uh, you know got you know clear ties to the Trump White House, uh, he's looking at that race. I can't imagine he'd be much different than a. a Leroy or a Fulcher when it comes to education policy. Right, and I, and I, I would be interested to see kind of where his education policies sync with, uh, with the Trump-DeVos uh, education agenda. But, you know, the more candidates you get into that race, the more we may see yet another, you know, hard, hardline conservative jump into that race just doing the math saying, you know, you know five- or six-way race in that district with that turnout, you can win that race with, you know, 25, 30,000 votes. I mean, we've seen it happen before. This is a, this is a difficult uh, congressional district to handicap, especially the more, uh, the more players you've got in that field. 
I mean, we, we could go back to the, the Bill Staley first election, exactly. right? where, where you have a large group of candidates, and maybe some that wasn't necessarily expected in the beginning pops mm-hmm. out of that race yeah. because you only need to get like 22, 23% when there's eight candidates in it. Right. And, you know, we, we've seen this with primaries before. Uh, you know, the first CD, we've seen it before. The Bill Staley race jumps to mind. But, uh, you know, we saw it three years ago on the state level with, uh, with Sherry Barr's nomination, which caught almost everybody by surprise. But, when you get four people in a can in a race and you have fairly low turnout, and in that case you had really no one candidate that seemed to have a lot of advantage in terms of name ID, in terms of endorsements, anything can happen. And in that case, it did. <laughs> for for a mom or dad sitting at home or a teacher who's on their summer break, uh, what should they be thinking about when they're voting here? I mean, when they're, when they're thinking education, should they be thinking their local board of trustees or superintendent races? Or should they be thinking Congress or governor or uh, state superintendent? I mean, what which one of these races is going to have the most effect on their lives? Well, I think they all are to varying degrees. And that kind of becomes our our juggle as we figure out which races to cover and to, to what extent. I mean, the governor's race is going to have a big impact uh, on on state government in general, and it's going to have a huge impact on education policy, partly because of what we talked about, that the five-year plan that Butch Otter had his task force create is going to, you know, is going to wind down, and then what do you do? What becomes the next five-year plan, or do you even do a five-year plan? Um, you know, listening to, to Tommy Alquist and listening to your interview with him the other day, you know, He's not going to put together a task force uh, to figure out the next five years. It's going to be, it would be some other process. What would that process look like if you had a Brad Little in the governor's office or Raul Labrador in the governor's office? Or, you know, if, if A.J. Belukov does decide to run again and, and, and won, what would it look like? I mean, it's really hard to tell. But you just know that the next governor is going to have an opportunity to do something different with education. And... You know, superintendent's such a big race in terms of education policy. Uh, we don't know exactly what we would see with uh, with the Sharia Barra in a second term beyond that task force, beyond the task force window. I mean, that's been kind of, you know, in some ways I think it's restricted her, but in some ways I think she's used it as sort of safe harbor in, in terms of saying, well, you know, we're going to let the task force do its thing. We're going to uh, defer to the task force, defer to to the legislative process. Well, that, that becomes less of an out in, in a second term for Ibarra. And, you know, if somebody else winds up getting that superintendent's office, uh, you know, he or she would have a real opportunity to sort of, you know, chart a different course or chart a new course on education. And I could make the argument that Sherry Abar is running for a different office now than mm-hmm. she was four years ago. Yeah. I mean, this four years ago, there was the task force recommendations. We're coming out of the Luna laws. You know, there, there was an idea of where we were going. She didn't have to chart that vision herself. We're going to have a new governor there. And I did talk to Tommy Alquist the other day. It, it sounds like he's in favor of Common Core standards, maybe not a huge fan of the test, but not a huge fan of implementation, but a huge fan of local control. It was kind of hard to suss out the, you know, that, that spot on the horizon where he's trying to bring us. Mm-hmm. 
Brad Little, you could argue, is going to be similar in a lot of ways to Otter, but we don't know that. I we mean, don't know that for it, sure. It's hard well, we're kind of assuming that because Little is Otter's candidate. You know, Little is Otter's guy, but does that mean that Little would be a clone of Butch Otter? I don't think that's fair to say. I don't think that's, uh, you know, I don't think that's a fair conclusion to draw. And I, I don't think I've ever moved into a different position and not made huge changes, even mm-hmm. if I was the, the protege of someone. You know, even if I was the understudy of someone, I, you, you sit there, you look, and you see what they're doing right, do, do what they're doing wrong, but you also have the, your opinions on what they should be doing. So the moment you get in there, you think you know what's best, and you're going to implement that that process. It could be very different than uh, what the last guy or woman that had the job was. And then you've got uh, our good friend, Raul Labrador, mm-hmm. who I think we all have an idea of maybe what his uh, system would look like, a lot more local control, uh, maybe less harsh standards from the state, you know, really pushing a lot of things down to the local level. But that's still kind of a, a theoretical thing. I don't think anyone's hard, got him hard on the record of what he'd do as governor. Mm-hmm. We're just kind of extrapolating from his uh, time in the state legislature and his time in Congress. So that leaves, you know, the, the one person that currently has steered the ship and could have the best vision because she's been under the hood for the last four years is Sherry Ibarra. Mm-hmm. And it seems like, logically, whoever becomes governor might take a step back and let her kind of steer the ship for a little while. But like I was kind of saying before, on a lot of issues, uh, Sherry Ibarra has maintained herself as a blank slate. Uh, she's been very reluctant to stake out positions of her own on a lot of these issues. And, and the case in point that uh, came up just in the past couple of weeks, the Supreme Court ruling on uh, the Blaine Amendment and how that might affect Blaine Amendments in Idaho and other states. I asked uh, Superintendent Ibarra for a reaction to the Supreme Court ruling, and basically what we got was a recitation of, well, the Constitution forbids this at this point, and I'm sworn to uphold the Constitution. Well, that doesn't really answer the question of, well, what do you want to do about the Blaine Amendment? Do you want to keep it in place? Or do you want to take a run at seeing it tweaked? And there are obviously folks in the legislature and obviously folks in, in, in the, the school choice movement who want to go there. And there are some in the state house, uh, Scott Bedke being one, uh, for the time that he's still in office, Butch Otter being another, who are fairly reluctant to, to, to go there. But that, I think, becomes a really big issue in the superintendent's race. I think it becomes an issue in the governor's race when you think about education. This whole school choice um, issue becomes something that we're going to have to to tease out and, and cover more closely. Common Core, which you know, to I think a lot of educators, maybe not to you know, not to all educators, and maybe to a lot of parents, this feels like an issue that we went through four years ago. I think now becomes a little bit more of an election issue. I mean. What would these candidates for governor or superintendent do with Common Core? And if it's a you know, repeal Common Core, is it a repeal and replace? And what kind of standards do you try to create at the state level? Do you even go there? And I think it becomes a reporting job for us now to go back and say, all right, beyond the rhetoric surrounding Common Core, what's been going on in the classroom? We do have a sample size now. We have a few years of the Common Core standards in the classroom, the Common Core test. Uh, applied to those those standards. I mean, it's time as we head into an election to look at those 
look at those issues and look at those impacts on the ground. And we're getting to a time in the political landscape where it's actually feasible to repeal and not replace Common Core. Mm-hmm. I, I think um, last year, even the year before, you say you have to replace it with something. There's no option of not replacing Common Core because there's so much federal money tied up in that that you need those statewide standards in order to collect that or else you're leaving a lot of money on the table. Now, maybe not. Now, with the, the climate in the back in D.C., it's possible that you could repeal and not replace, which does open up a whole other option, I think, for a lot of folks. Um, I did want to get to one more thing with you, but mm-hmm. because I'm actually like really curious about it. I've been thinking this lack of vision, this kind of blank slate that you're talking about, and it's not just Sherry Barr. I think it's across the board. It's our congressional candidates. It's our um, gubernatorial candidates. It's you know I think it's even a lot of our state legislators don't want to talk about what the vision is for education in Idaho. Paradoxically, that's the opposite of what good politics normally is. And I'm trying to figure out what's going on with education in Idaho where you don't you don't paint a rosy picture of what you want to accomplish and then try to convince people you can get them there. Because that's what you do with every other topic. And education, countlessly, on um, these Boise State surveys, is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Is it is it just the Luna laws? Is it just Props 1, 2, and 3 that make people so skittish about laying out a vision? And we'll get over that at some point? Or is it that it's no no longer politically advantageous to say what you want to do with education? Yeah, I, I think the the aftermath of the propositions and the the outgrowth of the proposition being the uh, the task force of, of 2013, I think has has given a lot of politicians a lot of cover. It's given them some sense of predictability. I think you've seen that at the state house. I think you've seen that in the budgeting process. There have been a lot of surprises in the education budgets these past couple of years because its implementation, its funding of the uh, of the task force recommendations. So I think it's given legislators a lot of opportunity or a lot of uh, a lot of cover uh, to where you see a lot of debate about. A really small proposal like uh, the, the Sherry Bar Rural Education Center. We're talking about a three hundred thousand dollar initiative that has uh, that has started some really serious and, and really uh, you know, really sharply divided debate you know, in in the legislature and in the House specifically when it's come before the House. So you know you've had some nibbling around at the edges beyond what is already uh, laid out in the task force recommendations. We'll see. I mean, I think you get into this 2018 election and there is a chance to talk about, well, where do we go from here? And how do we know what we've gotten uh, out of the task force and, and, and how the task force recommendations have really worked and, and what sort of impact they're having? I mean, we'll, we'll get a better sense. We should be starting to get a better sense of... Uh, you know, of what Common Core is doing in the classroom and what the test uh, is measuring with students. You know, we'll be a few more years now into the career ladder as we head into this next election. We'll be able to talk you know, a little bit more about retention and recruitment and, and, what, and what the career ladder is doing in that sense. You know, and you know, we'll be able to look. It's something I want to do here in the next few months is, is really look at... Uh, what's happening in terms of post-secondary outcomes and what programs the state has in place 
are having an effect on helping students get ready for post-secondary, whatever post-secondary looks like, because it's different for different, uh, different young adults. So I think there's a lot there, which makes this really an interesting election coming up. I mean, there are a lot of good issues, a lot of good chance to revisit some issues and, and sort of drill down on the impacts, what we've got in place right now with Common Core, what we've got in place with... Uh, you know, with the career ladder, what we have in place with the federal programs that are being funded to the tune of $264 million a year in Idaho. Well, what does all this mean, and how is this all working? And if candidate X gets elected and wants to change it, change it how? In my, my civic sense, my historical sense, my uh, I guess everything but my political sense tells me this is the moment in time to be bold. You're, it's the perfect time to lay out that vision. And yet everyone seems to want to play it safe and it's, it's something that i can't wrap my head around because it, it defies a political axiom as well so it, 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 i think as you you know hear me badgering politicians throughout the next year there's going to be a theme that i keep coming back to because mm-hmm. education is so important and it's tied with jobs it's tied with our economy it's tied up i mean if we don't teach our kids how the three branches of government work it's tied right up there with our government's ability to function. I mean, this is the kind of the bedrock of what a government does. Mm-hmm. And I think it's time for a bold vision from someone. And it's, it's available. And I would hope that, as I, as I say repeatedly, I'd hope that most politicians would lay out their plan of what they want to do. If the voters don't like it, they don't have to institute a plan that they don't like. Right. But, yeah, I think this is a good chance heading into these elections to, to, to really kind of look under the hood. And, and look at what we've got in place, what's working, what's not working, what uh, what do these candidates want to change, and, and, and to get past the sound bites. I mean, it's easy to say, you know, get rid of Common Core. It's easy to say, get rid of the Department of Education, the Federal Department of Education. Uh, it, it's easy to say we need to fix this education funding system so that districts aren't so dependent on supplemental levies. Those are all easy comments to make on the stump, and depending on who you're talking to and, and which uh, which constituency you're addressing, those are going to be popular little sound bites. But what does that mean? Replace Common Core with what? Replace <laughs> Federal Department of Education and federal funding with what? Fix the funding formula so we get uh, less dependence on supplemental levies. How? And, and what does that look like? So. Uh, I think uh, our work's cut out for us. Your work's <laughs> cut out for you. I mean, we're gonna have a, it's, it's going to be fun. It's going to be a fun election to cover because as policy wonks, because we're policy wonks even more than we're soccer fans, I think, <laughs> there's a lot to chew on here. There's, there's a lot in these races to to, uh, to dig into. It's pretty close on the uh, soccer versus, uh, yeah, I mean, versus policy wonks. Slight <laughs> exaggeration. That's probably going to be a, uh, get fact-checked a little bit. But uh, Well, the, the one thing I wanted to hit before before we left, because I feel like you're trying to wrap me up because Clark put some sort of arbitrary deadline on my time here. Uh, <laughs> you got plenty of time. <laughs> um, so there, there's a sports term called the unicorn, which is basically this this prodigy uh, athlete that has maybe they're seven feet tall but can run a hundred meter dash in a record amount of time. There are these these folks that don't exist very often and don't come around very often. So if you've got freaks one, of nature, you're, yes. you, you've got your unicorn. If you, if you're drafting. For let's say the superintendent of public instruction, who who are the unicorns out there? I can't really pick a unicorn out of a hat right now. I mean, and it's 
that's why it's such an, an interesting race, superintendent, because, you know, you're not necessarily going to get a natural politician to run for superintendent because if, if the expectation in the electorate is we want somebody with education experience or we want somebody with an education background, I, I think that it's tougher to get somebody who's sort of a, a political unicorn to want to run for that race and to resonate in that race. I think that's the one race, I mean, it's, you know, it's a little bit like, it, it's unlike any other race on the ballot in Idaho. I was going to compare it with attorney general, but, you know, attorney general, you've got to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And lawyers tend to be uh, political. Right. <laughs> and I think lawyers, because of their, their work and maybe because of their own political background, before they look at attorney general as a, a stepping stepping point in, in politics, already have some political instincts. Yeah, educators, school superintendents maybe are less political creatures by nature. So I, you know, in my travels talking to school superintendents or principals or, or teachers, I have not come across somebody who I think of, wow, there's somebody who would be, you know, a natural born candidate for, for state office. I'm not saying that I haven't run into folks who I could see running for state office and being solid candidates for state office, but... I am hard-pressed to think of anyone that I've seen who I thought, wow, this person could run for state superintendent and just be, you know, uh, just be a natural, you know, just be, you know, yeah. don't know that person. And the, the one person that I was thinking of that clicks a lot of those boxes that has teaching experience, that has worked in the uh, state government, that uh, has a whole lot of political experience is the first lady. It also has some incredible name recognition. If you threw her into a race, but uh, who knows if she actually wants to do it. I think she'd be a very formidable candidate. I think she's as close to a unicorn for the superintendent race as we have. That would make the race really interesting. That would make the race even more interesting because, you know, you're right in, in, the, in the sense that she's got name ID that probably, you know, if you, if you talk to 100 people on the street and you did a strict name ID Lori Otter versus Sherry Abara. I'd be curious who had higher name recognition. It may well be Lori Otter. I'd be curious if you did Lori Otter versus the gubernatorial candidates. She might win that one, too. But, you know, name ID can cut both ways. I I would be really interested to see what would a a Lori Otter candidacy for state superintendent look like and how would that play with voters because the name ID is definitely high, but there's also a little bit of Otter fatigue. And that otter fatigue may be more pronounced in a closed Republican primary, where there are a lot of uh, you know, rank-and-file Republicans, conservative Republicans, who are not happy with Governor Otter, who are not happy about, name your topic, the grocery tax uh, comes to mind first, but you can go down the list and find a lot of topics that conservatives are not happy with, with Butch Otter about. That is not going to bode well for, for Lori Otter in a race in a closed primary, but... Man, it would give us a lot to write about and a lot to talk about, though. And the grocery tax will hopefully have itself sorted out by the time that that race comes around. And I should One ho- can only hope. I should hopefully have a little story up uh, either later this week or early next week with uh, the possible new uh, U.S. Attorney, uh, Bart Davis, breaking down the grocery tax arguments from uh, last week as we move closer to when a decision is bound to come in. I think we're, we're maybe a week or so out from that, but hopefully that'll sort itself out well, very well. quickly. 
We will wait and we will stay tuned. Seth, Point of Personal Privilege podcast. You guys are sitting down having long interviews with these candidates. They're, they're good, in-depth interviews. Uh, people should check them out. You know, you don't have to just listen to one podcast. You can listen to multiple Idaho podcasts. It's, it's okay. But if you're going to listen to one, just listen to the one that I'm on. Either way. <laughs> okay. Well, well, we'll let it go at that. Seth, thank you for joining me. And thank you. Thanks for taking the time. So two quick takeaways. There is still an awful lot to sort out between now and the 2018 elections, and there is still no lasting peace in the Idaho political podcast wars. That said, I do want to thank Seth O'Gillaby for taking the time to talk to us, and I do encourage you to keep an eye out for their updated podcasts at the Point of Personal Privilege podcast. And that's going to wrap it up this week for our podcast here at Extra Credit. I want to thank you for listening. Clark Corbin will be back next week, so we'll uh, catch you up on the latest education policy and education politics. In the meantime, check us out at idahoednews.org for all the latest news. Follow us on Facebook and join the conversation there. And follow us on Twitter at Idaho Ed News. I'm Kevin Richard. Have a good week.